Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me All right. Hi, um, my name is Cosima B. Concordia, and I am a writer and a leather dyke. Hi, my name's Aurora Laborn, and I'm a struggling academic. <laughs> we love that for you. <laughs> At least someone does. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Um, well, what are we going to be talking about today, Aurora? We're going to be talking about philosopher, surrealist, and general oddball Georges Bataille. All right. So we're going to kind of continue on about our favorite, uh, our favorite girl from last episode. And we're also going to tie it a little bit into um, both his fiction works, his nonfiction life, and also mysticism. Uh, specifically Amy Hollywood's work on thinking Bataille through the lens of Christian mysticism. Mm -hmm. And just to start us off, I thought I'd give us Bataille's dates. So he was born on the 10th of September, 1897, and he died on the 9th of July, 1962. So he's a, he's a Virgo. Of course he's a fucking Virgo. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very important to know before you, you know, go into a... And so, sort of by way of introduction, I thought I would give a little shout out to Dr. Benjamin Noyes, whose critical introduction of Bataille I drew a lot from, because I'm only familiar with Bataille's poetry and literature. I haven't worked super closely with his philosophy, although I am here with little philosophical tidbits to help contextualize the kind of theory that you're going to be unpacking for us today. Excellent. Do you want to yeah, yeah, do you great. start us off? <laughs> yeah. So to start out with um, some of Amy Hollywood's work in her book, Sensible Ecstasy, Mysticism, Sexual Difference, and the Demands of History, she utilizes several different philosophers to um, talk about medieval Christianity. And one of the primary ones is Bataille, a callback to last episode. Also, folks like Sartre and uh, Simone de Beauvoir make a major appearance. Sartre and Beauvoir, those phony posers. Those phony posers, absolutely. They they admire Saad, but, and I quote Bataille, do they eat shit? <laughs> <laughs> Truly, I don't think they do. Um, so... In medieval Christianity, there fell down kind of two different ways in which mysticism generally happened, and you can sort of categorize them into the feminine mysticism, which is generally like affective, emotional, visionary, and erotic, and the masculine, which is speculative, intellectual, and often explicitly anti-visionary. The reason for that is is that women at that time weren't able to have any sort of rational claim to what the gospel said and so one of the ways in which they would be able to kind of have a level of knowledge and a level of 
power in some specific instances was through mysticism and through this kind of embodied embodied knowledge. Um, so at the time, women were they were considered to be more porous. So basically, they could they could be a vessel for either the divine or the demonic easier than um, others. <laughs> and also, sickness and frailty was projected onto women's bodies. So generally, there was there was kind of this idea of suffering already connected to women that then like kind of the rational man uh, distanced from, you know, the idea of like enlightenment and going above. Like women were everything that the body failed to be, its weakness. Two mystics come to mind, actually, that might be helpful examples. So Hildegard von Bingen and then St. Teresa. So Hildegard von Bingen had like almost like flashes of lightning insights, and those were her mystic experiences. And you see her depicted in art, and it's almost like she has lightning hitting her. And St. Teresa is the one <laughs> very um, explicitly depicted by Zipotticelli in, in, the, in ecstasy, in toe-curling ecstasy. Mm-hmm. It's that picture that's on the front of erotism, the Ties book. No mistake there. And so one of the reasons that in the way that gender is socially constructed, the way that mysticism kind of fell into these two camps, it fell in that way because that was the way in which women could have this type of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And in several different cases that involved a kind of confrontation with nothingness or darkness or a confrontation with, you know, what could be seen as like these subversive elements, which then allowed these mystics to kind of like challenge like these hegemonic ideas of knowledge like in the system of thought that was completely dominated by the men and so to connect that a little bit back to the tie like as we talked about last episode he was really obsessed with how fascism was way better a myth and how marxism would continue to fail against fascism unless it was able to think myth and so one of his big attempts at that was Asafail, which was his kind of like surrealist secret organization built around the headless god, which was this attempt at creating a mythical kind of Marxist figure. But then the problem was, is that everyone wanted to be Jesus. No one wanted to be Judas. Like a lot of people literally wanted to be the sacrifice, but none of them wanted to be the one who would actually kill them. Then the war and the horrors of the war really changed Bataille. And he talked about the war as creating a world without myth, as just this utter destruction. And he came to recognize that death is, uh, it's an end of communication. Mm -hmm. This idea that sacrifice enables communication was closed off to Bataille, because death is, death is the end of, the end of communication. And so he continued to seek this extreme or without limit and wanted to really confront his feeling of like survivor's guilt. He had a lot of constructs about or complexes <laughs> about how he felt really guilty about having survived and like the pointlessness of his existence and he really wanted to confront that, not as a way to escape from the bounds of history, but as a way to really face his own contingency within history. 
So what's super interesting about his literature is that he didn't necessarily always publish the work after he had written it. This is especially the case with The Blue of Noon. He wrote this in, I believe, 1935, but it wasn't published until, or might have been 1925, but it wasn't published until much, much later. And in fact, he was reluctant to publish it because he had disavowed a lot of what he believed in it. So he had a, a grander notion of sacrifice, as you mentioned, and he had a much more abstract understanding of war and of what it means to, like, what death was. One of, like, the last couple of lines in in the book it says, against this rising tide of murder, so he's referencing the coming war in Spain, Far more incisive than life, because blood is more resplendent in death than in life. It will be impossible to set anything but trivialties, the comic entities of old ladies. All things were surely doomed to conflagration, a mingling of flame and thunder, as pale as burning sulfur when it chokes you. Inordinate laughter was making my head spin. As I found myself confronting this catastrophe, I was filled with the black irony that accompanies the moments of seizure when no one can help screaming. So the music ended, the train had stopped, I slowly returned to the station, the train was assembled. For a while I walked up and down the platform before entering a compartment. The train lost no time in departing. So that's more nihilistic, but it also it has a grander notion about what death is and like again a very metaphoric understanding of blood when that became much more concrete to him in his later writings. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that his thought grew up a little bit from being this very mm-hmm. idealistic idea of what suffering was. And and so what's interesting is in his later work, like with inner experience, he was accused by Sartre of wanting to be everything. And so Sartre was like, that is that is fascist thinking. And especially because Bataille you know, like one of the fascinating things about his different works is that he's always changing his definitions. He's often using different terms kind of interchangeably. And his reasoning for that, and, and that in, that includes like scientific terms, terms that imply a objectivity. Mm-hmm. So he basically responds that his goal is not to present objectivity but to traumatize and explode (laughs) objectivity by using that very language and by this constant process of language and this traumatizing of writing and traumatizing of language in order to reveal the things that are or to, to reveal inner experience, you know, in its pure form rather than being held to these like hegemonic ideals. And so very much that kind of, system of unsane of of negation is a lot of what lots of the mystics were doing in the way that they transgressed against the very order that they were affirming and so it's kind of this like double double move that's like foundational to eroticism it's totally in stark opposition to the kind of ambivalence of a lot of existentialist writing so i have in my nausea or even the stranger even though like the existentialists are thinkers of freedom, there's just this banality to the characters and their decisions, and they're just going with things because nothing matters. It's 
that to me is the the thing that is closer to fascism or that to me is the thing that's closer to the actual scary kind of nothingness the not thinking element of nothingness where it's just a rejection of of something as radical as as unthinking because i would say there's a lot of thought that goes into unthinking as i'm sure you you would agree oh absolutely yeah i mean in his in his like confrontation with or moving towards um inner experience for him that becomes the place where communication can actually happen in the same way that we talked about last episode about how eroticism is this move from being a discontinuous being that sees the world as other into back into continuity Mm -hmm. that part of the process of accessing inner experience for him is living in he says in death's breath And so that's to be as close to death, to his own frailty, to your own death without actually dying. So again, it's that it's the same as the erotic and the religious impulse that he's trying to access through that. It's also a metaphorical paradox, the idea of death breathing, because death is the lack of breath in so so many religious contexts, too, because breathing and breath of life ends up having Mm -hmm. or at least ends up being a a sort of (laughs) i would say something stronger than a light motif but i don't have enough background in in philosophies of religion to (laughs) to make a stronger claim than that yeah that sounds that sounds right (laughs) (laughs) uh so to 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 complicate uh a little bit like the place he he gets to in the end is not necessarily the most ideal and, and that's that's one of the things that Amy Hollywood is is trying to complicate too within sensible ecstasy. So he's no longer pursuing, you know, this like literal sacrifice, but one of the things he does is he he will contemplate, he'll meditate on this particular picture of a Chinese prisoner of war that's just like hor- horribly tortured, like won't go fully into it as a way to access this sort of continuity and and his own death to to experience ecstasy and communication and it's such a form of objectification i think that we can see the problems with that like i think that's the foundational problem of texts like let's say like margaret atwood's handmaid's tale right it's it's a fantasy of straight white women like who are like relatively well off like what if they experienced all of the trauma and oppression that marginalized people have already experienced throughout all of time and so and so yeah there's problems of orientalism and and he he really is like appropriating the suffering of someone who is not consenting to that in order to <laughs> to reach ecstasy mm-hmm. And and so that's something that differentiates him with, like, say, uh, Angelina de Foligno, who who's the mystic that specifically had this this relationship in her visions of kind of the feminized son, the feminized Jesus, and specifically suckled blood from his side wound. And so it's obviously very queer <laughs> there. And so so that's something that like Amy Hollywood suggests, which I think is is really is really fascinating is that Jesus as this <laughs> mythical figure mm-hmm. that is both historical, like centered within history, but also completely removed my myth and transcended and elevated past reality, basically serves as a means of access 
towards suffering, towards that communication. And the same thing that Bataille is trying to do with um, the picture of the tortured prisoners. Mm -hmm. And then that really gives new meaning to the idea that like, you know, Jesus suffered for you, that it's like Jesus suffered so that you can contemplate his suffering (laughs) in a in a way that is not super exploitive because he actually did that specifically for you as a way to elevate past that i think that there's also something about that where you know it's basically consensual (laughs) like like jesus uh, decided to do that and i think that that's how i feel about bdsm Mm -hmm. there is like often this very religious feeling of suffering, I think, on both sides of both the the tortured and the torturer, but it's through the givingness to each other and that deep sense of communion within that. Mm -hmm. So Bataille writes, To a greater or lesser extent, everyone depends on stories, on novels, to discover the manifold truth of life. Only such stories, read sometimes in a trance, have the power to confront a person with his fate. This is why we must keep passionately striving after what constitutes a story. How should we orient our efforts to renew, or rather to perpetuate, the novel? I thought that was a really beautiful quote. I thought that there were a lot of really wonderful themes. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is another point that Hollywood makes, that to understand the entirety of Bataille's thought and how it really functions, you have to read his fiction, because for him, the stories that he writes are these kind of living mythological representations of or not not representations but they're they're myths of his philosophy they're they're the mythological component because they are able to articulate things that pure rationality are not able to accomplish and so within Bataille's philosophy he's able to go through this kind of like constant traumatizing of words and changing of definitions and movement of thought but within stories things are able to exist beyond mere metaphor and also beyond like just the literal thing that it is like the object itself Mm -hmm. the myth itself is the way that it is because it articulates and it communicates a thing that could not be articulated in another Mm -hmm. way and i think that that's one of the ways that our discussions of metaphor or what stories mean reduce them because any story that is truly great cannot be reduced like that. So Bataille's philosophy is always renewing itself, but his novels perpetuate that philosophy. Yeah, I think that that is definitely a good way to think about it. And and also like, for instance, Bataille, we found this this really fantastic quote that Bataille hopes his readers will fall into his text as, quote, into a whole. So we could think of him as the whole philosopher <laughs> and um, the philosopher of whole. And <laughs> He's also called the philosopher of excrement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love him. And so he associates his or he thinks of his writing project alongside the Freudian idea of like the castrated female body which feminist thinkers like Beauvoir and Arigure, they both reject this idea of the feminized Jesus, mm-hmm. like as witnessed within this vision by Angela de... Uh, what, I, I, from some place that sounds like fig. <laughs> and they reject this because of this idea that the woman is a castrated man, is, you know, like a deep, this deeply offensive 
idea and that like a woman is lack. But I think that what's really fascinating is, is if you go really into how Bataille thinks about the wound, there is something really beautiful there. Like, uh, mm-hmm. so has this book, Madame Eduarda, specifically the main character sees God in this sex worker's vagina. And like one of the quotes is the narrator kisses Eduarda's genitals. Finally, I knelt, I trembled, and I put my lips on the living wound. And so that experience, it doesn't lead him to nihilism. It isn't like, oh, this is where the holy is. And that means that the holy is debased. It actually leads to a celebration of like the sacred and of life in general. And, you know, as a trans woman, like, I think it's really fascinating to think about that because bottom surgery is often talked about as a literal castration, even though it is far from a castration. But there is kind of that visceralness and the way that we are conceptualized in the broader imaginarium. And that's part of the reason that trans women are both these objects of intense desire and intense disgust, like we're the biggest porn categories. And then we're also often murdered because people don't want to be associated with us or people are disgusted by the idea that they could be attracted to someone who is, you know, hiding something that isn't a woman secretly. And so I think that there's something about how Bataille makes the wound holy, makes the abject holy within within that relationship between the profane and the sacred that is really beautiful mm-hmm. and feels like leaning into this deeply misogynistic, deeply transphobic <laughs> myths as a way to kind of like redeem them and like make them literally holy. It's like in our bonus episode, we talked about Benedetta and there's that fantastic scene where Benedetta sees Jesus on the cross and he's like super twinky. He's like very, very, very <laughs> feminized body and his legs are crossed. And then when he tells her to take off his, um, I don't know, little short thing. His loincloth. Lo- his loincloth, there we go. <laughs> and, um, well, uh, maybe it shouldn't It shouldn't be called that. I, I misspoke. I misspoke. Sorry? Oh, it, 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 there, it shouldn't maybe be called that as, as you were about to reveal. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, and then and then there is nothing there and 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 it's just kind of a a, a genitalless Jesus. And so I think that there's something really really beautiful about the variety of queer readings that we can have both in the obvious like implications of like the 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 kissing and the the drinking blood from the side wound of Jesus, but also of the feminized Jesus. And I think that that can take transness in numerous different directions. And so then like going back to Hollywood's idea of Jesus as a mythological figure who is then able to be the figure of meditation and of experience to get to this ecstatic state, I think... I think that's why so many leather queers are so into Christian symbolism, right? It's like, is we are like, like deeply relate to this, to where these felt embodied experiences of suffering take us and, and what that means to us in our own lives. Mm-hmm. So if we read his 
fiction as being somewhat autobiographical as well. It mirrors this relationship that he describes in The Blue of Noon with this character named Dorothy, who he calls affectionately Dirty. That's her little nickname for him, who <laughs> describes as having this sort of sort of seeing as both the most foul thing, but then also as having an almost of a reverent relationship with her or experiencing some reverence for her because of this filthiness. Ah. So he sort of confesses to her, I'd like to fall down in front of you just the way that you did. And she's in this moment stumbling around drunk, completely filthy. And then she had just been throwing up and she asks him, would you throw up? (laughs) And then she kisses him like, and he says, kissed me inside the mouth. And then his response is, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so fascinating. Well, and also in the Thai's fiction, as as far as I can remember, there isn't, it's definitely not a focus on heterosexual penetrative sex. That's not generally what's going on. That is that right? <laughs> Absolutely. There's a moment here where the character that we, I think, ought to read as him confesses his impotence and he he's describing to this mutual friend who he does not describe very i don't know positively like very he doesn't give a very kind description of her so he says during the period in my life where i was most unhappy i used to frequent for reasons hard to justify and without a trace of sexual attraction a woman whom i only found appealing because of her ridiculous appearance as though my lot required in the circumstances a bird of ill omen to keep me company. So, <laughs> apparently this character is Simone Vi. She's That's someone I have no knowledge of, but she's a notable intellectual of the same time. She's very, very holy. She, I think she starved herself to death, like, to make herself pure. Oh, wow. She's, she's a very interesting character. Yeah. But he confesses all of these sexual things to this woman who is very, very holy and very, very serious and who makes him uncomfortable because of how (laughs) holy she is. So let me just find the quote. So he says to her, I told this virgin the story of my entire life. My telling it to a girl like her, she was condemned by ugliness to a stern stoicism that could only endure life ludicrously was so imprudent that it made me ashamed. Never before had I told anyone what had happened to me. Each sentence was humiliating and an act of cowardice. I'll tell you why everything turned out so badly. And this is the story of how Dirty left him. It is because of something you're about to find incomprehensible. I have never had any woman more beautiful or exciting than Dirty. She literally drove me wild, but in bed with her, I was impotent. (laughs) Later on, he's trying to get over dirty and he's bar crawling and he meets this woman that he likes. It's the end of the night and he thinks to himself, I knew what would happen if I took this girl to a hotel room. I had very little money left. I would emerge with my pockets empty, not to mention being insulted and overwhelmed with contempt. So this is reference to his impotence. He knows that he can't take this woman back to this hotel room no matter how much she wants. And I don't think he really wants to be having sex with with all these women and nothing about how he describes himself and his erotic encounters like seem at all as you highlighted to to be for the purpose of coitus it more so seems more experiential more about pushing one's limits and figuring out what those limits are 
more sensuous in all sorts of different ways. Sensuous in the fact that even throwing up ends up being very embodied, intensive, sensuous experience. Maybe not like a good kind of sensuous or maybe maybe a good kind of sensuous to some people. I don't I don't know. I guess it, it can be a relief sometimes. So die. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well and and there's um I feel like when genitals are involved, there's often very uh very unusual things go go in genitals. Like I like thinking back to the story of the eye, you know, there's like the bull testicles mm-hmm. that are inserted and I think later there there's an actual eye inserted into Lots of eggs, like eggs that are cracked between the main character's butt and like cracked everywhere. A lot of eggs. Um. Amazing. <laughs> and like when 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 genitals do come into play, so finally he's reunited with with Dirty, who he realizes that they'll although they love each other and they're bound to each other, they'll never be together. It's finally when they consummate whatever it is between them, their, their boundedness. And it is very, um, it very particular read. So he says, Dorothea opened wide and I bared her the loins. She in turn bared me. Wow. So hot to tie. <laughs> Just really, really getting. Mm-hmm. That's the, those are, that's the, that's, those are the genitals. And then her naked cleft, cleft. <laughs> Lay open to me like a freshly dug grave. Love to love to bear and be bared, you know. Those are that's the that's the mention of genitals. Interesting. Open to me like a freshly dug grave, and then immediately it it become it becomes talking about other things. So their bodies are like dirt, or their bodies are quivering like rows of teeth chattering together. So immediately moves away from normative notions of what coupling or lovemaking mean and connects to like really abject metaphors or like really visceral dirty sensations so the sensation of mud and dirt being like strewn all over their bodies and them feeling it mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. something i found super helpful from benjamin noise was this image of a labyrinth. Professor Dr. Noyes says, The labyrinth is Bataille's image of thought, and it is a labyrinth from which we cannot escape. By leading us into the labyrinth, Bataille demonstrates why it is impossible to appropriate his work and why he still remains a vital figure in modern European mm. thought. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And because the labyrinth, is it like the labyrinth doesn't have one set solution or... So I've been looking into what are sort of mythic depictions and descriptions of labyrinths versus labyrinths as they're shown in art. In art, labyrinths, they have one way in and one way out versus how they're described in myths is they're ever shifting. And that's the the thing that you can't break or the thing that you're going to get lost in. And there's the the monster haunting the, the hallways. That almost also speaks to how myth or the stories that we tell are super different than any other form of representation. There's something else that's captured there. Um, and 
labyrinths are very different. I, I love I think. thinking about that that way. And that within fiction, that's inherent to how fiction functions. But then with his philosophical thought, he goes about it in these ways that are often very confusing because of the ways that he changes his terms. And he uses terms in ways that aren't traditionally utilized that way in order to constantly change the labyrinth and to undermine the directions that we're going. I love that so much. To go back to Amy Hollywood for a second, part of her conclusion is with the tie as the god of the mystics or of, of the Christian mystics is a, quote, god without aim, project, salvation, or knowledge. Hence, not god at all, at least as the concept is deployed within the mainstream of Christian theology and philosophy. Christian mystics experience the limit that undermines conceptions of the divine central to Western philosophical traditions. And so I, I think that, you know, that's definitely where you, we can find the, the unity in their thought and why I think they are so consistently, both Bataille and mystics, are so attractive to, I think, a lot of like queer folks is because they are fundamentally anti-hegemonic thinkers that are about disrupting these broader systems of thought and that fundamentally are opposed to the idea of there ever being a system of thought that is complete or totalizing, that that's inherently a fascist construction that we should fight against, that we should always be working to disrupt and to undermine. Mm-hmm. We can also think if we want to talk about myths a little bit more, it was, oh my goodness, I know Icarus was the son of the labyrinth builder, and I'm totally forgetting the labyrinth builder's name, but they were they were punished, I want to say. So after building the labyrinth, and they had to then flee this tower that they were locked up in, and that's when the inventor of the labyrinth like made the wings for him and his son, and his son was the one that flew too close to the sun. I don't know. Seems seems relevant. Or not. We can edit that out. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Um, let's see. The Labyrinth is built by Daedalus for Daedalus. King Minos okay. of Crate. Oh, and he gets punished because he's punished because he helps the king's wife have sex with a bull he builds her like a furry suit so that she can have sex with the bull and then she gives birth to the minotaur and then they build the labyrinth to put the the minotaur in um yeah (laughs) love i love i love mythology Uh such a good time everyone's (laughs) having fun (laughs) where were we where Um, are we (laughs) Let's see. So I think that the way that mysticism has like this doubleness of being everything while also being nothing really reminds me of just like some of the most religious experiences I've had. Like the first one I ever had was when I just first started experimenting and I was with this person X and they told me about when they were in Catholic school and how girls would take turns choking each other until they passed out and so then i i uh was like okay when um they asked if i wanted to be choked out and i was like choked out completely until passing out twice in a row and 
that kind of visceral experience of going of going into nothingness and then coming out and the blood rushing back and the vibrancy of it was such a vivid incredible feeling that's very very difficult to articulate but at the same time is is not something i would ever recreate or or think anyone should recreate because then um you know i was kind of in a in a very uh a very non non careful time of my life and it's it's really really dangerous mm-hmm. you know like the the risk of just you know it's super bad for you like uh, like blood clots and or just never waking up but yeah i mean i i think mm-hmm. that i think that's part of that sort of relationship getting as close to that communication of like ultimate horror within this context of love within a context of a relationship is able to accomplish like these kind of deeply <laughs> deeply religious feelings and creation of meaning uh through kind of the ritualization of it and i think that that is a theme that we will continually come back to one other thing i wanted to talk about uh, like kind of a clarification is um you know i get <laughs> with the the kind of stuff that i often post on instagram people will often ask if I'm Christian. And I would say that, like, I, th- I think the biggest issue that I have, like, we will continue to go into this through- throughout Drunk Church. But mm-hmm. the biggest issue is that atheist as a word has been, like, so utterly ruined. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, obviously, like, I feel like the vast majority of people in my life are probably atheists, like, on brass tacks, but, like, not in the, like, awful way that, like, when people identify as atheists in any sort of meaningful way, it's usually the fucking worst people. And it's because it's been, it's kind of been morphed into this, like, almost a belief in, like, science is a, is a system of, like, finding out the best we can at the moment about, like, objective matter and how the, um, the close we can get to objectivity about how the world works, but it like it doesn't do value, it doesn't do anything else, and it's always also created within society. Um, and I think a lot of like people who say they're atheists, like it relies on this. They often fall into this kind of like biological essentialism thing. I think it's mm-hmm. not a coincidence that so many of like the major quote unquote atheist intellectual figures have like come out as like really intensely transphobic in the last several years. Or eugenic. I feel like Richard Dawkins. That's the totally. one who was just was tweeting at this point maybe a year and a half ago about how we could make a, a, like perfect people. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, why would you well, tweet it, that? Like why would you think that? <laughs> well, <laughs> well and it's like and it's like that's of course where you're going to get to if you think that like the meaning of life is biology. Like, you know, those things are important. Being able to get knowledge about things, to create things, to help human beings and that is important but but it's not value um and the the second that you do that you 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 start like trending towards phrenology right oh yeah where <laughs> yeah like you you're like oh you know like chimpanzees do this and so that like explains why we do that and so then like what are you going to fucking do start looking at like skull sizes and stuff <laughs> and like okay. how societies are built up like it it's just very interconnected and it's like maybe that's not what we should be doing here that's not actually how any of this shit works and 
So to clarify, like when Bataille was asked at certain lectures in his life, he he called himself an atheist at some points and then at other times like kind of complicated the phrase atheist. But when he says he's an atheist, and honestly, when when basically any intellectual figure calls himself an atheist during that time period, it is not like easily translatable into the way we think about atheism now. Like, I think if you had a Bataille now, like he would, people would like call him spiritual, just like people call me spiritual. And then we would say like, fuck you. Um, (laughs) So, so yeah. And, And also like the other thing that Bataille is like really good at is like being able to use the language of God to talk about things in a meaningful way, not just like this rejection, like, oh, God doesn't exist and therefore like has no like meaning like like Nietzsche who you know Bataille's entire philosophy you know is is very much the direct predecessor to Nietzsche Nietzsche is the God is dead guy but mm-hmm. but like God is dead does not mean like now we have this like objective reality outside of like Christianity or something. (laughs) Yeah. That's not what the pronouncement of God is dead ever meant. And, um, say God is dead. Then behold, man, the Ubermensch, something else fills that void. It's why it's not just negative nihilism. It's positive nihilism. And it's positing something new. And that's why it's dangerous. And you have to be careful that you aren't just doing that. God is dead. And then biology becomes God. You have to for sure yeah it's like it, it yeah and that and that's why like Nietzsche was uh you know misread and deeply uh, and like appropriated by like Nazism I mean mm-hmm. also partially because when he was uh sick and feeble his um his sister, sister who was like a proud Nazi also kind of like controlled his legacy so and Hitler was that's also that. obsessed with him like Hitler went out of his way to be photographed in front of busts and portraits of Nietzsche and there's like lots of photographs with Nietzsche's sister and Hitler that's why you can never trust your stands you know you just don't know if they're gonna read you correctly and so let that be a lesson to everyone listening to this we don't want you to misinterpret our work (laughs) in a way that makes you do things even a, a fraction as fascist as um as a hitler so please please don't do that ever yeah we're we're an anti-fascist podcast that's what we're doing here (laughs) yeah if there's any confusion um oh my god um yeah so so, sorry if sorry if that was a bit ranty um i just have a lot of i just have a lot of strong feelings about it and also like i don't i don't like strong identification with terms because most terms are like so diluted and can mean like so many different things and so i just uh i think i would i would hope that the work we do can speak for itself and you can make your own conclusions mm-hmm. as long as they aren't the conclusions that hitler made about Nietzsche. yeah so that's one of the things about bataille right bataille is able to look at the christian mystics and be able to to engage with them even though they're engaging within this uh this very like concretely organized tradition partially because what they're doing is is like disrupting the hegemony of that very tradition that they exist within and um and that those things are always of value that like throwing those things away is like completely ridiculous 
Oh, it's also super strange to look into any of the work or any of the writings of of mystics and to see something that's systematic besides their very tenuous relationship with the Catholic Church, which is for sure like incredibly dogmatic and one of the oldest institutions in the world and in fact has the longest standing army in the world's so like huge imperial violent presence, obviously. <laughs> but then to look at the fragmentary work of the mystics, a lot of which is stream of consciousness, which is inspired by these experiences that are are erotic or are like sometimes even connected to disability. So there were mystics that were that had epilepsy and they were writing or speaking from those experiences. So yeah, to look at that and be like, that's hegemonic when obviously they were to some extent dissenting voices because they were utterly original in each sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And to throw like, <laughs> like for instance, liberation theology, which is, you know, like came out of Latin America, um, mixing with like very radical, like uh, usually like leftist ideology. That was like a revolutionary use of Catholicism as a way to literally organize the working class <laughs> up against yeah. oppressors. And so to look at any all of these breakoffs and these like massive, like massive fucking things, like when we say Christianity or Catholicism or even Buddhism, like you cannot make any extremely broad claims about it because it's thousands of years and just so many different people and so many different political movements and so many different places like Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, do you want to do the confessions now? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So, uh, do you want me to do the first one? Or? Take us, take us away. All right. So the first one is, my biggest sin is loving people already in monogamous relationships. Yeah, it sucks to be into people that aren't into you or unavailable. Loving someone isn't a sin, but acting on it if they're unavailable might be. Yeah. Actually, yeah, it absolutely. might it might literally be a sin. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, maybe maybe not an ideal ideal situation but, but um i think i think you'll be fine yeah i think i think you'll be okay keep yeah keep loving um <laughs> okay uh, so this one. yeah i guess after me, me saying that maybe this one is it could be me saying this i fear that deep inside i'm not a good person and someday it's going to blow up in my face yeah that's that's hard i mean i think the questioning whether you're a good person it's probably a good sign. I, you know, I, I, it, it shows some sort of some level of ethical self-interrogation, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's something. Actually, I think that that's the distinction between someone that's a good ethicist versus someone that's a bad ethicist. So bad ethicists want to get into ethics or ask themselves these questions because they want to justify their behavior, no matter what that behavior is, versus good ethicists get into ethics because... They understand that they might not be inclined to make the right decision all the time, but they want to know what that right decision would be and they want to be better people. So, yeah. 
I love that. Okay. Next one. I did blood play with my ex, and now I crave being fucked on my period. Yeah, that sound that sounds great. Very very cool and amazing. And, you know, a lot more common than you would think. I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say like, do people not have sex? Yeah, on their I, yeah. I I mean, yeah. That's <laughs> you should. You know. You should. You definitely yeah. should. I mean, um, if if you want to, you don't have to do anything. But yeah. You. Not to do anything you don't but want like, to. But like, also, yeah, you should. <laughs> Try it at least once, and you'll definitely crave it, or not. You or you might not. Who knows? Look at me making universal claims. We're all different, um, Aurora. I know. I'm just. I'm just projecting my own cravings on other people. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. I'm feeling more isolated, misunderstood, and unwanted in the queer community than I did when I was closeted and pretending to be cishet. That one is a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Um I mean, the the number one thing is that like there's not queer community is an illusion like that there is one queer community, there is manifold queer communities. There's so many queer communities with so many different types of people, and some of them I think really suck, mm-hmm. and some of them I really think are lovely. So, you know, maybe you're in the wrong queer community. Mhm. Now we have this like really like hegemonic understanding of queerness which is so ironic because that's exactly what it shouldn't be it should be different spaces where you can explore different parts of yourself and experience wantedness and unwantedness and i don't know all all of that yeah absolutely um okay next one i want to bite a pigeon's head off (laughs) <laughs> there's there's a very famous painting by um some surrealist whose name totally blows my mind but we'll post it uh of it's called desire and it's of a woman just biting a bird's head off damn it's so you're not alone <laughs> yeah you're not alone i mean i'm also you know as as someone that is into most fucked up things um i'm not into pigeon head biting off because i think birds are lovely and um i think pigeons are our friends and we should be kind to them wait are you're not a bird person are you i mean like there are cat people dog people i mean i i would say i'm like a dog person but like my family has always like i grew up like being like oh there's this type of bird and then you look at the bird i just i think birds are nice and they're nice yeah yeah I mean, I okay. think all I think all animals are nice. <laughs> oh, oh, definitely be kind to animals. Definitely. So yeah. maybe, yeah, we'll we'll show you this. We'll share this painting with you, and you can vicariously experience that desire through this beautiful piece of art. Absolutely. <laughs> or if you really need to, maybe you know, there's a pigeon that's already dead. Um, <laughs> but or, not or... not one that you find, like one that you like ethically <laughs> or something. Don't. Yeah, don't yeah. Just, not like... ideally. I mean, maybe it's like a meat pigeon, and then I don't know. I don't know. If it's... <laughs> you can find Just a way on the side of the road my time my time has come finally <laughs> that's providence for you um i am out as genderqueer i am so devoted to my partner but she would not love me as a woman i think the liminality and the plausible deniability of having a non-binary gender is a safety blanket i will cling to for the rest of my life 
yeah, this one just really makes me really sad. And I'll be honest, every single time I do confessions um, on Instagram, I always get some of these. I always get some people that are like, oh, I'm I'm trying like low key, you know, gender identity because I know I couldn't actually do this thing that I want to do. And it's like, you know, it is great if you are genderqueer and you want to be genderqueer. That's amazing. Um, But if you want to be a woman, if you want, especially if you want to transition, like, like you should do that. No, there should be nobody like who you are takes precedent. And I know that that can sound really selfish and it is technically selfish, but it's also true. Like you will resent anyone who present who stops you your entire life from you know being who you want to be that's like not a healthy way to live mm-hmm. so nothing wrong with being selfish that that one isn't a sin right? yeah yeah absolutely a little a little bit of selfishness and in, in the right in the right situations mm-hmm. is is a healthy thing it's it's holy mm-hmm. in fact. yeah and and i mean also um yeah i mean like I, you know, I also came out as non-binary before I came out as a trans woman. Like I, like I had like a year where I was non-binary first and that was partially because I wasn't able to transition because I was like living abroad at the time, but also like, like it helped Mm -hmm. me try on the things I needed to be like comfortable enough to really be like, oh, this is going to be okay. Um, so like hopefully, you know, I, I hope that for you. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Aurora. Thank you, Cosima. Godspeed and God bless to everyone. Godspeed and God bless. But also subscribe. Absolutely. Yeah, like, click that like button. Stamp on that like button. If you would like to support our show in a continuing way, we're at www.patreon.com slash drunk church. Okay, well... I hope everyone gets some of the blood of God before they leave and have a lovely rest of your day or night. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Bless you for building a new dream. Just when my own.